So two things. One, um, I would be uh, very frightened if my chin unfurled. <laughs> two, uh, Freud, I'm so sorry you were fucking right. <laughs> Books. 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 Hello. And welcome to Didn't Read It, the podcast that woke up like this. <laughs> I'm your host, Grace Todd, a writer, editor, and ardent lover of oldie-timey literature. With me today to discuss oldie-timey literature is friend of the show, William Albritton. Hello. William, would you like to introduce yourself? I would love to. Um, I am also an occasional enjoyer of oldie-timey literature. Not so much these days, but my other contribution is being terminally online, <laughs> which is great because we're talking about... Today, we are discussing Franz Kafka's, oh my God. Franz Kafka. Franz Kafka. <laughs> Today, we are... Frangelico. <laughs> Frangelico Café con Leches. Franz Kafka's 1915 novella, The Metamorphosis. I'm very excited. I know nothing about Franz Kafka. I have referenced his name online once or twice without knowing anything about what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm very excited. So you might find that you are familiar at least with the opening passage. When Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from troubled dreams, he found himself transformed right there in his bed into some sort of monstrous insect. Oh my god, it's the it's the bug in the bed. It's the bug in the bed. Okay. Yes, I have seen I have seen the bug in the bed. <laughs> and that's really where like the reputation of the story I think begins and ends. It's just bug in a bed. Bug in the bed. Is there is the illustration in in this version of the book? There are no illustrations. And actually really interestingly, so people have obviously drawn this a million times because it's kind of irresistible. But one of the things I find really interesting is that when the short story was originally published, the magazine he published it in wanted to put an illustration of an insect on the cover. And Kafka was ardently opposed. He was like, absolutely not. Because the point is not really the bug, which, of course, is the kind of thing that immediately gets lost when a piece of literature becomes this embedded in the zeitgeist. I'm sorry, you wanted metaphors in your popular culture? How dare you? I'm sorry. Were you trying to be symbolic? Everything is exactly what it says it is. So where where is the illustration that I'm thinking of from? I'm not sure, actually. I don't know where that came from. Sorry. So for, for the people listening, he's showing me a black and white sort of etching looking drawing of a beetle on its back in a small metal bed that now that he shows it to me, I have seen a million times before, but I could not tell you from whence it came. Who knows? I don't know. I, if, if you've been on Twitter, you have seen this illustration, I guarantee it. <laughs> There's a very good cartoonist. Oh, God, what is her name? Her first name's Madeline. She has one that I see go around a lot, which is of a, a beetle on its back in bed and the and a cell phone on the bedside table. And coming from the cell phone is like, yeah, we're going to need you to cover your shift or come in. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great use of, of this. Uh, it's also actually very accurate to the story. <laughs> I'm starting to get a picture of why this illustration is used constantly. Tell so, le yeah, let's let's dive into the metamorphosis. Just a couple of sort of stats, shall we say, for the STEM kids. As I said, this is a novella published in 1915. It is mostly written in very, very close third person. Okay, so this guy wakes up. 
And he's a beetle. Greg, well, no, he's not a beetle. He's he's something different. And actually, the story was originally written in German, translated into English. And the German word that is most often translated as bug or insect is actually more accurately translated broadly as vermin, like nasty, gross, bad, sort of vermin broadly as a category rather than denoting a particular creature. Okay. Gregor, Gregor wakes up and he's gross. <laughs> Heard. Gregor woke up like this and it's a bad thing. <laughs> but we do get some description pretty quickly that is broadly insect-like. And very relatably, so he wakes up, he realizes that something is very wrong. He's got like a big insect shell back. He's got a bunch of little legs. He's on his back and the blanket is kind of propped up on his legs. He's pitching a very interesting looking tent. He is indeed. And then very relatably, one of the first things he thinks is, what in the world has happened to me? Followed by, what if I just go back to sleep for a little while and forget all of this foolishness? Reasonable. Very reasonable. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And then he wakes up again. He just kind of lies there for a while and thinks about, like, how much he dislikes his job and how much he doesn't want to get out of bed. And it's raining outside and he's cozy and also a giant insect, maybe. Uh, Okay, I'm I'm already sort of starting to see the point here, which is... Odd to me that he's portrayed as something. So, so the the way I'm following this is he's waking up as something gross is is Kafka's way of taking this character outside of his normal daily context. Except that he's portrayed as gross and bad for doing that. Yeah. So that's kind of yes. That is the inciting incident, and Gregor has been yanked from his routine by being turned into a giant insect. But it takes a long time for that part to sink in for him. So he's a traveling salesman, and one of the only things that we, one of the only details we get about his room is that he's got a picture of a woman in a gilt frame that he clipped out of a magazine. So not a man who has anyone really important in his life, right? He is a lonely traveling salesman. That seems like a stand-in for, like, traditional aspirations of wealth and uh, masculinity, maybe. Yeah, and he so he lives with his parents and his sister, Greta, <laughs> and he spends quite a while basically thinking about how he needs to get up and go to work. He's already overslept, and it's very important that he goes to work because the company he works for, his parents are in debt to from when his father's business collapsed. Oh, dear. And so the company kind of owns them, mm. and it's very important that he keep this job You get the impression it's a little bit of like an indentured servitude thing. He can't quit this job because his family owes the money. And he even says that uh, if I didn't have to hold back for my parents' sake, I'd have given notice long ago. I'd have marched right up to him and given him a piece of my mind. He'd have fallen right off his desk. Mm -hmm. And we all would have shot President Reagan, sure. (laughs) So like what we established right off the bat is his family's in debt. He's been supporting the whole family and he's actually done quite well. But now he is stuck in bed. His parents are starting to knock on the door and be like, hey, buddy, why aren't you up yet? And he's like, nothing, no reason. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's cool. I'm cool. I'm a bug. I'm just a bug. <laughs> Don't bother me. And it, and again, like it takes him a while. He, he still hasn't wrapped his head around it. He is primarily concerned with like, I have to get to work. And if I don't get to work on time, someone's going to come to the house and find me and try to figure out why the hell I didn't show up on the five o'clock train. It's already 730. Bad things are happening. And then the foreman, the supervisor from his job shows up at the house, which I'm really glad is not a thing that people do anymore. Yeah, no, that's that's weird. 
Yeah. He shows up to be like, what is going on? Why aren't you coming to work? What a fun relationship to have with your boss. I hate it. I, I hate it so much. And I've seen this referenced in like other Victorian literature. And I'm I just I'm I'm baffled. Timmy. Hello. <laughs> Come to work, please. Um, I'm I'm completely lost in the symbolism of the story already. There's a lot going on. Just wait. It gets weirder. Okay. Before things really come to a head with his manager, we get several pages of just the brute force logistics of being a man who has been turned into an insect who is trying to navigate a room. Like he spends two pages just trying to figure out how to get out of the bed (laughs) and has to resort to like rocking himself back and forth like a turtle. Delightful. And it's a little hard to grasp when you first read it. But one of the problems is that he's still trying to stand up. Like a person? Like Yeah, like a person. Mm, sure. And also all of his doors are locked and he lacks opposable thumbs now. Mm. And mm-hmm. so he's trying to figure out how to A, get out of bed, B, get across the room, C, unlock the door and then make his excuses to his boss because the headspace he's still in is that he's going to be like, no, 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 it's totally fine. I just need to eat breakfast. <laughs> Everything is fine. I am going to get on this train. I'm going to take another nap. And when I wake up from this one, surely I won't be a bug. When in doubt, take a nap and see if you're still a bug afterwards. Uh He will still be a bug and don't call him Shirley. (laughs) So he finally, he makes it out of the bed. And by the time he makes it out of the bed and is starting to get the door unlocked, his boss has already jumped to the point of accusing him of stealing money. And his mother outside the door is like, well, no, the only way he would ever miss work is if he were sick. And his boss says... I would note that as businessmen, fortunately or unfortunately, as one will, we are very often obliged to suppress indispositions out of consideration for the firm. Okay, okay. Yep, as, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that Gregor thinks about earlier (laughs) is that they have a company doctor and the only way that you can get excused sick is by being required to see the company doctor and the company doctor always just says everyone is fine. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a rule, this this reminds me of those uh, the Google campus or like Elon's plan for like a company city. God, yeah. It just oh, it, it's it's. I'm guessing that's where this book is going. If there's one thing we need, it's more company towns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just before he gets the door open, the boss gives him this massive lecture and it, and says, you know, your your productivity of late has been highly unsatisfactory. Essentially, you have failed me. But it's pretty clear that that's not true. And really what we're underlining here is just it doesn't matter how well you do. It doesn't matter how well he has been doing. He showed even the faintest glimmer of weakness. By, Once you slip up. And that's all it takes. Mm-hmm. Unluckily for Gregor, but hilariously for us, he finally gets the door open. <laughs> okay. At which point his boss panics. <laughs> And flees the premises immediately. Pretty reasonable reaction to a human-sized bug. Just absolutely horrified. Unfortunately, on top of that, his mother immediately faints. His father looks like he's going to attack him, but then instead collapses into a chair and starts weeping. And there's kind of a long moment where everyone doesn't really seem to know what to do, except that the boss is actively leaving and Gregor still can't let go of, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. And he's like, no, someone has to someone has to stop him and explain so that I don't get in trouble because I'm going to have to go back to work. And he tries to run after the boss who is like already out on on the stairs in this apartment building and his sudden movement drives his father to action who picks up a cane and a newspaper and then like herds him back into the bedroom like a lion tamer 
Incredible. And very importantly, the first thing Gregor thinks is, he's going to kill me. Like, we just jump straight there. My father is going to murder me. Great. Love some familial violence. Delightful. Delightful. But the other thing that happens very importantly is that when he when he tries to go after his boss, he falls for the first time onto his legs properly, mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to stand like a person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. is like, oh, this feels great. Scuttle around. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like my parts work. Mm. And he gets this very brief moment of being satisfied um, and is like mobile. But then immediately his father is attacking him and he's he's panicking. He can't get through the door straight on. Mm-hmm. And because he's so terrified that his father's going to kill him, he finally he's trying to like wedge himself in. And his father finally like, like physically kicks him through the door, which injures him and then just locks him in. And he kind of lies in the middle of the room and is like, well, <laughs> this is my fate. Uh huh. <laughs> So he he falls to the ground and realizes his parts work and it feels good. Is this supposed to be our first indication of like, yes, escaping your wage slave cycle is good? Nothing in the story is going to be that straightforward. Lovely. If that makes sense. I So personally, I prefer to be beat over the head with the point of my media or art. And so this is going to kill me. This book, <laughs> this book will be my death. Yeah, if you want a, a head beating, this is not the one for it because it's it's very complicated and it's very contradictory. Oh, lovely. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Nuance? Hardly know her. <laughs> yeah, so he falls on his feet and he says, no sooner had this, had this occurred than he felt for the first time all morning a sense of physical well-being. His legs had solid ground beneath them. They obeyed his will perfectly, as he noted to his delight. They even strove to bear him wherever he wished. <laughs> and already it seemed to him he would soon be delivered from all his sufferings. But then his dad tries to kill him. And he gets shut back in his room, and it's kind of implied he just, like, faints. He's unconscious for quite a while. And when take he, another nap. Yeah, take another nap. When in doubt. When in doubt. More naps. Uh-huh. And when he wakes up again, all of the doors to his room. And one of the weirder things about this apartment is that there are three doors to Gregor's bedroom, which I'm sure is symbolic in some fashion, but it just seems like impractical uh, room layout to me. But there you have it. I'll think about that one. In the, when he wakes up in the morning, there's like a family member pounding on the door on, on each door. Some, somebody somebody out there listening to this is like, how do you not know this reference? You, I, are you kidding me? You shouldn't. And, and, and I'm, I'm sure. sitting here clueless. <laughs> but, uh, You're when, right, fella. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, should be, I should begin and end every episode with just, I'm just a blanket apology. Just, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. So when he wakes up, all the doors have been locked from the inside. He's been, or from the outside, he's been locked into the room. Some food has been put out for him, which used to be his favorite food. And he tries to eat it only to find that he's disgusted by it now. His tastes are beginning to change because, again, he's a giant insect. I crave human flesh. <laughs> I wish that's where this story went, TBH, but it's not. And and what slowly develop, develops is that basically his sister is the only one who is willing to care for him in any way, shape or form. And she comes in, she puts food out. He hides when she comes into the room so that she doesn't have to see him. And she kind of trial and errors her way to finding stuff that he will eat, which is bug stuff, like old vegetable peelings and, you know, leftover bones from the old dinner and dried out cheese. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a little gremlin now. 
And he, he eats like a little gremlin. Yeah, he's a little gremlin. It's pointed out that she brings him eventually like a bowl of water and she doesn't, she won't touch anything with her hands. Like she uses a rag to pick the bowl up. There's this whole kind of interesting subtext that to me really jumped out as being like about contagion. Hmm. Anything that goes into the room is very obviously like disposed of. When was this written? 1915. When did we get germ theory? Like 1850 or something? We definitely had germ theory by 1915. Also, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but uh, Kafka died of tuberculosis, mm. which is one of those diseases that you have for like a long time before it finally kills you. And there's a lot of stuff in here, especially in like the brute logistics of the way that he's being cared for, that to me really evokes what it might feel like to be a, a patient, like a, a begrudged patient, especially, and like a contagious or a potentially contagious begrudged patient. So every time his sister comes into the room, she runs across the room and opens the windows and like sticks her head out to breathe the clean air and to like let the air room the room air out before she starts to do anything. Mm -hmm. Anything that comes into her into his room when he's done with it, she just sweeps it up like into a newspaper and disposes of it. And she's the only person who comes into the room. Like neither of his parents come in for weeks. And in fact, I think his father never comes into the room at all for the rest of the story. Did our, our boy Kafka know he had tuberculosis when he wrote this book? I think so. He so he wasn't. And again, we'll get into it a little bit more later, but he, he did not have a healthy life, nor a long one, and was in and out of sanatoriums uh, multiple times throughout his life. So I'm, yes, I'm pretty sure, I'm like 99% sure he knew he had TB by the time this was written. For most of the rest of the story, that's kind of the baseline. He's locked in his room. His sister brings him food. It's all very gross. His mom won't come in. And at first, he's deeply concerned that his family are going to be destitute because he was the sole he was the sole income provider after his father's business collapsed. And what we find out is that when his father's business collapsed and it left them with debts, Gregor stepped up and like took the family in hand and got this job and was promoted very quickly and got them this beautiful apartment. And like he's been taking care of everything. And of course, now all of that is done. But also we kind of quickly find out that maybe his family was kind of taking advantage of him a little bit because he can hear them talking through the door and they're hashing out kind of their financial situation. And his father is like, well, you know, we've got this nest egg left over from when the business was shut down and we've been putting this money aside from the money Gregor was giving us. And even though Gregor is almost embarrassingly like devoted to his family, he has this thought of like, if you had that much money left over after I was... Why am I giving you money? <laughs> well, and it was... And it's very specific. Like, if what I was giving you was generous enough that you've managed to save up a reason, reasonably healthy nest egg, that is money that we could have been using to pay off the debt that I am working off on your behalf. <laughs> so I could have quit my job that I hate sooner. This just feels like a, a very sad look into the economic system of the time. But he's also a bug. <laughs> <laughs> I, the way you're describing and 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 uh, I obviously have not read the book otherwise I wouldn't be here but it's it's kind of it's so far the way you're describing it it's just thing happens this other thing happens and also he's a bug pretty much for for most of the book you could trade out really any disease or deformity that kept him from leaving his his room and that made his family despise him and it wouldn't really matter the bugness of it all he could have had leprosy or something yeah the bugness of it all is kind of incidental and I think that's the point. This this story could have been written without him being a bug and it would be very sad and nobody would read it. But the 
absurdity of a person becoming a bug has to highlight the criticism, the satire. Otherwise, it's lost. Yeah. As I think you've already picked up, another thing that I think it's lost in sort of its cultural reputation is that it is darkly funny. Mm -hmm. There are bald comedic elements to all of this. (laughs) Dude's a bug. Funny. (laughs) (laughs) What what else do you want? Apparently, Kafka referred to it in his diaries as the bug piece. My go away. I'm working on the bug piece. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And so one of the other things that's established is that we get it like in summary, we get a brief backstory of sort of when Gregor took over the family finances. And it's, I think, probably a pretty familiar story for anyone who has had a family where at first his family are delighted and astonished by all the money he's bringing in. And then very quickly, everyone gets used to this arrangement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, <laughs> taking your family for granted? No, never. <laughs> never. <laughs> Let's see. So he and so he had set to work with particular zeal, which was immediately transformed into cash that could be plunked down on the table at home before the eyes of his astonished, delighted family. Those had been lovely times and never since had they been repeated, at least not with such glory. Oh, my God. Can you read the beginning of that line again? Well, I, I, I should say, for the benefit of anyone who actually has read the book, I squished two lines together. I, oh, okay, I, sure, sure, I sure. implied a dot, dot, dot. I just, I love the, the descriptive imagery of, like, his, his work becoming commodity. That's a beautiful piece of, piece of language there. Yeah, and then uh, those had been lovely times, and never since had they been repeated. All had grown accustomed to this arrangement, not just the family, but Gregor as well. They gratefully accepted the money, and he was happy to provide it. But the exchange no longer felt particularly warm. How sad. Yeah, it is. It's it's very disappointing. And then the other important thing we find out in this little summary is that his sister is a, a pretty talented violinist, and he's been secretly saving money up to send her to the conservatory rather than have her get married. Mm-hmm. That part is essentially implied. Mm. And against his parents' wishes. Mm-hmm. So he, he sees a very particular talent in his sister that his parents do not want acknowledged, and he is squirreling money away to nurture it. And he had planned to announce on Christmas that he had saved up enough money to send her away to school. And now he obviously can't because he's a bug. This isn't super important, but uh, in the event that she's getting married, is she already committed? Or is this just like a, you gotta find a husband? <laughs> type deal um it's not really touched on a ton so she's she's still a teenager she's she's still a child basically she's like 17 it is not implied in the meat of the story that there's been any move made to marry her off yet it's just kind of the conservatory if you were reading this in the time if you're reading this in 1915 and you've got a 17 year old girl and someone's talking about sending sending her off to the conservatory you would understand that this, at a minimum, would defer marriage right. because she'd be studying, which would be... As any 17-year-old should be. Uh-huh, yep. So he's particularly devoted to his sister, and at first it seems like this is kind of being mirrored because she's the one who does almost all of his care. And at first she seems more attentive, even though she's also the one who, as I said before, kind of treats the room like it's disgusting and contagious. The one time she sees him, she panics and shuts the door. And so he winds up laboriously like draping a sheet over a piece of furniture so that he can conceal himself entirely. Furniture fort. <laughs> this is just some small child's dream. They wake up as a bug. Their family provides them food and scraps and they get to make a little furniture fort to crawl into. <laughs> Franz is just like, mm, I remember that daydream I had when I was seven. Let's write a book. 
30-year-old's existential crisis, <laughs> three-year-old's fantasy. I yearn to be a child. I feel like there are a, a bug. I feel like there are a lot of things that you want when you're quite small that are existentially horrifying by the time you're in your 30s. Yeah, like several million dollars of Legos. That would be terrifying. It's just too many. Where would you put them all? You'd never be able to be barefoot again. <laughs> Home alone, but it's Legos. That feels like one of those, like I'm imagining the, um, what's the myth- mythological figure that's murdered with molten gold because he was greedy? King Midas? No. Nope. Anyway, I'm just imagining someone getting waterboarded with Legos is where, <laughs> is, is where I was going with that. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's not put you in charge of our mythology department. That's <laughs> horrifying. We have a mythology department? Yeah. Oh, wow. Back. The budget's doing better than I thought. It's because we were hiding our income from Gregor Samsa. That's right. And making him work for us for nothing. That's right. So the next kind of turning point in in Gregor's now very narrow life is that his sister, who again is one of the things I find really interesting about his sister is it's, it's very hard to tell how genuinely solicitous she is of his well-being. How much is him projecting that assumption onto her? Because it's the book is written in like very close third. We spend most of it in Gregor's thoughts. And again, he is clearly devoted to her. And so it's unclear with some of the things that she's doing if he is just telling himself that this is because she cares and maybe their parents just put her in charge of taking care of him because she's younger and their mother is portrayed very much as like a hysteric who faints anytime something happens and his father is terrifying or if she genuinely cares. This is overwhelmingly bleak. Well, didn't you know that Kafkaesque means hilarious and heartwarming? Yes. Yes, I did. I did know that, actually. The Metamorphosis brought to you by the Hallmark Channel. That is the way I've committed to using it, and that is the way I will use it until the end of my days. How was the comedy show? Kafka-esque. <laughs> How was your podcast recording? I really want there to be Kafka-esque Hallmark Christmas movies now. Just, just a white woman waking up one morning, finding that she's turned into a giant gingerbread cookie. But her family is excited at this turn of events, and they all feast upon her flesh like the body of Christ. I was going to say she's eaten by her children. Yeah. The end. Yep. So his sister eventually starts to notice. That he's a bug? No. So his sister eventually begins to notice that the longer he's locked in the room, especially at first when he's still feeling relatively healthy, even though he's locked in, he eventually learns that he can crawl on the walls and the ceiling, which is how he spends most of the time entertaining himself. Oh, this must be the cultural origin of goblin mode. <laughs> so he goes full goblin mode. Uh-huh. And his sister begins to notice that at this point, his most of the furniture in the room is just in his way. Obviously, he can't use it. Mm-hmm. He's a bug. Mm-hmm. And it's preventing him from being able to kind of cover the room as much as he wants. Like run in circles like a little goblin. Yes. One of the things I love about the story is the absolute like grounded realism, like the commitment to detail of all of the weird logistics of being a giant insect. It's noted that he leaves behind like a weird kind of slimy little trail on the floors and the walls and the ceiling when he goes crawling around. Mm-hmm. There's so much text devoted to just making you understand what it's like for him to navigate the world now as a human-sized vermin. I wonder, I wonder how much of that is is supposed to be symbolic of something and how much of that is just almost masturbatorily like, what would it be like if a man were a bug? I'm going to spend a bajillion days writing about it as a some sort of perverse exercise. I mean, column A, column B, but I also think a lot of the time, if you have a piece of fiction that's going to make l- this leap out of reality, right, one of the ways that you 
you get a reader to kind of trust you and come along with you for that adventure is to make it all really grounded and make it all feel Mm. very real. Sure. And that's how you get to tell a story that is nuanced and complicated and also a story that like wedges itself into the zeitgeist for this long is by really selling it. You believe it. You're just like, yep, this dude is a bug. Holy shit. That's why Marvel sucks so much. Yes. Neat. So... His sister decides the furniture has to go. And then this is where I think, in, and this is my personal opinion, this is the first place where I think we see Gregor have a chance to be happier than he ultimately winds up being and lose it. Because at first he is uncomplicatedly pleased with the furniture being removed. And then he overhears his mother saying to his sister that they shouldn't get rid of the furniture in his room. Because by removing the furniture, we would be showing that we are giving up all hope of a cure and ruthlessly abandoning him to his own devices. I think it would be best if we try to keep the room in precisely the same state it was in before, so that when Gregor returns to us, he will find everything unchanged, which will make it that much easier for him to forget all that has happened in the meantime. Minus the slime trails, of course. Minus the slime trails, of course. That's so sad. It, it almost reads like, I mean, it, it reads like, uh, you know, innocent hope for your loved one to overcome their malady. But also it feels kind of insidious to me and I can't pinpoint why. Well, I think it's, it's deeply entrenched denial, right? She's she's refusing to address the situation as it is mm. and is living solely invested in an imagined future where this is not the situation anymore. Mm. Also like the very human activity of othering sick people. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And so Gregor hears this, and then we, the reader, immediately see him make a complete about-face. The way it's written is, Hearing his mother, mother's words, Gregor realized that the absence of all direct human address, combined with the monotony of life in his family's midst, must have muddled his understanding over the course of these two months, for he could not otherwise explain to himself how he could seriously have wished to have his room emptied out. He almost, the way I read it, is that he like almost embraces a transition into something different. And at the last minute, he clings to this idea of like what he used to be to his own cost. Despite this, his mother and sister are still emptying out the room. And he all of a sudden is like, I can't let them do this. And so when they are out of the room, having just removed one piece of furniture and they're about to come back for another... He lights on the one thing that he thinks he can protect, which is the picture on the wall that was cut out of the magazine. Mm. And he scurries up onto the wall to cover it with his body, just in a panic. And his mother comes back in, sees him, screams, faints. His sister panics, runs out of the room. He runs after her, thinking that he's going to be able to help in some fashion, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. despite his lack of opposable thumbs. Gigantic bugs are great for people who faint. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and run away. Yeah. Um, his sister is like grabbing its implied medicine or smelling salts or something. He realizes there's nothing he can do. So he just stands behind her for a minute. And then she turns around and sees him and screams and like starts throwing stuff at him. God. Actually, no, she doesn't throw something at him. She drops a bottle of medicine, which breaks. And then he's really confused and she's really confused. And she runs back into his room and shuts him out of the room with their mother inside. And there's nothing he can do except wait. Do, do, do all of these events 
the, the last like three minutes all all happen kind of sequentially. Yes, because I love I love the I love the thread of events of almost embracing the escape or you know getting out of of this routine. Finally, deciding on clinging to it and and refuting the departure from the norm, and then immediately reinforcing that he is a bug. <laughs> he is wrong and bad. That's that's such a delightful, horrifying little. Uh, I don't I don't know what it is. It's very sad. Yeah, it's. It's pretty grim, and it's about to get grimmer. Oh, delightful. Because mm-hmm. he's trapped out in the living room, and an indeterminate amount of time passes, mm-hmm. and then his father comes home. Mm, goody. Uh-huh. God, the, like, just that, that, that phrase itself, just the father coming home in 1915 has such an ominous sort of connotation. Yeah, it's not great. Gotta love it. Also, a detail, an important detail I forgot in the course of all of this happening is that when he is on the wall trying to protect this picture, which is just like the saddest little totemic item to me. Does he crush it? No, but when he, when his sister and his mother come back in, just before his mother faints, his sister yells his name and like shakes her fist at him. And it's pointed out that this is the first time that anyone has directly addressed him. By his name? Since he, since he was transformed. Oh, just at all? At all. Oh, wow. Yeah, cheerful. I need to read this book. <laughs> so his father comes home and realizes something has gone wrong. And the first thing he says is, his sister says, Gregor has broken out, which isn't quite what happened, but sure. (laughs) And then his father says, that's just what I expected. I kept telling you, but you women refused to listen. Ew. Yeah. Shut up. So his mother gets out of his bedroom and his father starts chasing him around the living room or around the apartment. Good and normal. And Gregor is panicking. Mm-hmm. He is because again, he's like, my father is going to kill me. This is I, this man is going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time where we notice a a really interesting and almost I would say insultingly Freudian transformation. Oh dear. Which is that his father, who at the beginning of the book is described as being too old and and too infirm to work. But, but plenty healthy to chase him around the room with a newspaper. Well, so listen to this. Hey, get a load of this sh- Was this still his father? The same man who used to lie wearily entombed in his bed? who would greet him on the evening of his return sitting in an armchair in his nightshirt, who, incapable of rising, would merely raise his arms to signify his delight, and on the rare walks they still shared, would trudge between Gregor and his mother, who themselves were already walking rather slowly, moving even a bit slower than they, bundled up in his old overcoat. Now he was standing properly erect, dressed in a smart blue uniform with gold buttons, above the jacket's tall, stiff collar, his powerful chin unfurled, Beneath bushy eyebrows, his black eyes peered out acutely and attentively. His once disheveled white hair had been painstakingly combed and parted until it gleamed. So two things. One, um, I would be uh, very frightened if my chin unfurled. <laughs> two, uh, Freud, I'm so sorry you were fucking right. <laughs> well, so Kafka was familiar with the work of Freud, and it's I think it's all over this story. Intimately. A. But so, yeah, this really interesting thing happens where his father seems to be regaining sort of strength and virility directly in in proportion to Gregor's descent into whatever the hell he's got going on. What is that supposed to mean? Well, in the Freudian sense, which 
Kafka wrote about quite a bit. There is an idea that when a when a young man comes of age, he has to replace and conquer his own father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm familiar with that part. Which results in the diminishment of the father. Right. So this is the reversal of that. Okay, sure. I guess there doesn't need to be any explanation why he's suddenly strong. It's just, it happens. Yep. Sure. Okay. Fine. I mean, and if you wanted to do the the thing that I feel like we do too much at this point culturally, where you treat uh, characters as if they're real people instead of characters created by a writer, I guess you could say that maybe going back to work instead of relying on his son to just bring him money. The whole book is pro-capitalist. Maybe like, I mean. Work is good. Without, well, with, without being pro-capitalist, I feel like one thing that we know pretty broadly is that while it is not ideal for it to be having a job for money, sitting around in your apartment all the time with nothing constructive to do with your time at all is bad for you. That's very fair. I just, I can't get the image out of my head of um, Franz Kafka, famous propagandist. <laughs> Yes, Kafka, who notoriously loved everything having to do with the system of labor in 1915. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue that his father's life had reached a certain level of purposelessness because one of the things that's noted earlier in the book is that he spent most of his time eating, like, enormous breakfasts and reading newspapers for hours and hours. And it just kind of sounds like he didn't really have anything to do. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, hard hard work is fun and satisfying sometimes. Removing the employment from it all. All right, 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 right. It's good for us to have stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, dudes love gardening. Love dudes, garden. dudes do love gardens. Maybe none of this would have happened if this family had had a garden instead of an honestly? apartment. Honestly? Honestly. Plant a couple trees. How about some tulips? They come yeah. back every year. If the Samsa family had a, a community garden plot, none of this would have happened. None of it would have happened. <laughs> so his father is chasing him around the living room and eventually corners him and then starts throwing apples at him. Okay. All at once, something flew to the rug beside him, casually flung, and rolled across his path. It was an apple, and already a second one came flying after it. In horror, Gregor stopped in his tracks. There was no point continuing to run now that his father had decided to bombard him. And eventually, one of the apples hits him in such a way that it embeds himself in his back. Gregor tried to drag himself forward, as if the sudden shocking pain might vanish with a change of place. But he felt nailed to the spot and collapsed there, his legs splaying out, all his senses in a state of utter bewilderment. And this is a wound that is going to be with him for the rest of the book. Like, it never properly heals. The apple is wedged in his back, and no one in the family is willing to remove it. And so it just sort of festers there. Weird. I don't know what to make of that. I would simply deflect the apple. (laughs) I would simply not get pelted by my father with apples. Yep. If I were a giant bug, Mm -hmm. I would simply not. I'm I'm making absolutely no analysis here. That doesn't mean anything to me. (laughs) The important thing is that his father has dealt him a pretty grievous injury. Why apples? So Kafka was Jewish, but he was very interested in religion broadly. And like the symbol that apples serve in Christianity did cross my mind. I did not go there. Um, I could see it. That's kind of... So Gregor's father wounds him pretty severely, and this 
is kind of the beginning of the end. And from here, things get weirder structurally, and it starts to feel to me even more parable-like. Because following his father's attack, there's a weird thing where his family starts being a little more considerate of him. So when his father's throwing the apples, his mother comes running and and begs Gregor's father not to kill him. And that's what it takes for them to recognize him as like a little bit of a victim. I think so, but it's it's it doesn't really seem to, it doesn't seem to last. Mm-mm. And so the only real concession is that they start opening his door at night so that he can like watch them. <laughs> sit by the fire in the parlor. Oh my God. And then we learn what the family has been doing to make money. They all have jobs now, all three of them. Mm. And it seems like it's simultaneously been good for them and bad for them because working is bad. They are sort of working themselves half to death. And one of the things that they keep complaining about is that the apartment is too big for them now because they can't afford it anymore. But they say that they can't move because of Gregor. Mm -hmm. But what he says is... Their greatest lament was that they were unable to leave the apartment, since no one could imagine how Gregor might be moved. But Gregor understood that it was not only out of consideration for him that a move was being ruled out, since he could easily enough have been transported in a crate of appropriate size with a few air holes. The main thing keeping the family from moving to a new apartment was their complete sense of hopelessness, and the thought that they had been struck with a misfortune such as no one else in their entire circle of relations and friends had ever experienced. God. That, oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> what a what a scathing bit of, of community failure. Yeah, it's fascinating because the portrait that's painted of them, especially in this last section, is that they are exhausted. They are working very, very hard. But the implication seems to be that they are doing it in like a, a slightly melodramatic and kind of self-flagellating way. They don't have to be living quite like this. And they're almost, in a weird way, seeming to kind of relish in it. Okay. It's it's fascinating. I mean, you got to have the grind set mindset, baby. <laughs> 25-8, you got to be on the ball. Sales, sales, sales. Giant insects are for closers. Uh-huh. Got to learn your ABCs. Always be creeping and crawling. <laughs> Always be creeping. Always be crawling. Um, And I... I think one of the implications here is that they are doing this kind of for his benefit, because right around the same time, the quality of care that he's being given really falls off. Oh, bummer. They stop cleaning the room that he's in. It's turned into like kind of a pit. They're barely feeding him and they're not paying attention to whether or not he's eating the food that he is being given, Mm. which he is not. So it sits and rots. Delightful. Um, Lovely. His sister is still solely in charge of his care, but she doesn't really seem to care anymore. And at the same time, they have taken in some lodgers. So Mm. they stop opening his door at night. This apartment is apparently huge. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Classic four bedroom, five bath uh, apartment. And where does this take place also? Kafka lived, Kafka grew up and spent most of his life in Prague. Oh, interesting. I don't know where the metamorphosis is set or even if I think it's, you know what? I think it says and I skimmed right past it. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that you can live in Prague and, and write such a bleak story. It's such a lovely place. Well, maybe it wasn't lovely for him then. He didn't go to enough beer gardens. <laughs> I mean, I definitely, living in Prague when he did, I think was complicated. He was Jewish, but not from a super religious family. Yeah, please forgive me for my lack of knowledge of the history of Prague. It's a lovely place now. I have 
European history, not my thing. No thanks. We love you, Prague, mm-hmm. even if Kafka didn't. I think most of his complaints were about his family, not the city he lived in. Sure. I cannot for the life of me find where this is set. So we'll just say, you know, some somewhere in, in a place that is at a minimum roughly analogous to Prague. Let's sure. go with that. Uh, it doesn't really matter. We never leave the apartment. <laughs> Although I do forget sometimes how huge apartments used to be if you had money. You know, like if you weren't living in a tenement. Hmm. Some of those apartments are friggin' enormous. <laughs> I never knew that or thought about it. That's interesting. Anyway. If you're if you're curious, uh, the 17th century is considered the golden age of Jewish Prague. This is from this is from Wikipedia. Uh, the Jewish community of Prague numbered some 15,000 people, the largest Ashkenazi community in the world. But this was, again, 17th century. 17th century, so yeah. 200 years before him. Things were a little more complicated. The expulsion of Jews from Prague by Maria Theresa. 1745. Okay. Uh-huh. It gets worse. Yeah. Historic context, not super important to the story. Well, it's also important to remember that Kafka is living in Prague in between the two world wars. Classic. Okay. Yep. Sure. Uh-huh. Sure, sure, sure. Delightful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Both of his sisters died in the Holocaust. He was dead already, though, so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. Complicated. It was a complicated time. Not making any more jokes about this guy. So they've taken on a couple of lodgers and... They've started using the room that he lives in as kind of a dumping ground for all of the assorted nonsense that has nowhere else to be. And so he's just literally living in a trash heap. And the lodgers, to me, feel like they are something out of a parable rather than three-dimensional characters. There's all kinds of weird attention being paid to, like, what they eat and the way that they eat and the way that his sister and mother wait on them. But they don't have name, Like, they're barely characters. And they exist as kind of a, um, a unit. There's three of them. Mm. It's just three men, no names, no description, who exist on the page for, like, a few pages. And it's... I don't know. It's all, it's, it's strange. It feels allegorical. The three wise men showed up. Yeah. And they, the way that they act towards his family is like very high handed. And it's definitely meant to illustrate that his family have sort of moved down in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a point where. Kind of a weird way to treat the people who are housing you. They treat them almost like domestic staff. And in fact, there's a clearly meaningful point where his mother and sister bring their, their dinner out. And it says, the one who sat in the middle and appeared to be an authority figure to the other two cut off a piece of meat right there on the platter to check whether it was tender enough and didn't have to be sent back to the kitchen. He was satisfied, and Gregor's mother and sister, who had been watching nervously, now smiled with relief. Weird. Yeah. And then the the thing that kicks off final act in this story and in Gregor's life Mm -hmm. is that his family have kind of been expelled from their living area by these lodgers. So they eat dinner in the kitchen and his sister starts to play the violin and the lodgers overhear it and inquire and Greg and Gregor's father is like, would you like her to come play for you? Oh God. And they invite her out to play for them. And then they, it says, I don't know if I'm ready for this. It's not as bad as you think. Thank God. So they have her come out and play. And after not very long at all, they sort of go off to the side and start just like smoking cigars and chatting as if she's not playing. It says, it appeared more than clear that they had been disappointed in their expectation of hearing beautiful or entertaining violin music. And now tired of the 
whole performance, were continuing to tolerate this disturbance of their peace only out of politeness. And I don't know if that's meant to imply that she is not actually very good at playing violin, or if it's meant to imply that these are men who, despite having enough money to kind of lord it over his family, have no taste or heart. Mm. You know? Sure. But Gregor, who hasn't heard his sister play the violin in a very long time, I'm I'm pretty sure that's the implication, is bewitched and comes creeping out of his room. And it says, was he a beast that music so moved him? He felt as if he were being shown the way to that unknown nourishment he craved. He was determined to creep all the way up to his sister, to pluck at her skirt and in this way indicate to her that she should come to his room with her violin, for no one here was rewarding her playing as he meant to reward her. He would not allow her to leave his room ever again, at least as long as he was alive. His horrific figure would, for the first time ever, be useful to him. He would be at all the doors of his room at once, growling at his attackers. But his sister should remain with him not by force, but of her own free will. She should sit beside him, bend down, the better to hear, and he would confess to her that he'd had the firm intention of sending her to the conservatory and that if the disaster had not disrupted his plans, he would have made a general announcement last Christmas, without letting himself be swayed by objections of any sort. After this declaration, his sister would be moved to the point of tears, and Gregor would raise himself to the height of her armpit and kiss her throat. God. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. (laughs) There's there's so much going on there. My word. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. (laughs) And I mean, again, I don't think it's a stretch to say that there's some kind of weird sort of Freudian stuff going on there. Oh, yeah. But also setting some of that weirdness aside, it seems clear that he considers himself the only one who is like truly appreciating her talent. And he feels that that sets the two of them apart. Right. There's even this might be a this might be a modern construction, but there's even a little bit of the like. I'm the only one who appreciates your talent, and and that means I deserve the talent, like the result, you know, like he's he's hoarding her her music playing. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely in there, and I th- I think a thing that maybe doesn't quite get carried all the way through into this story's cultural reputation is that Gregor is supposed to be kind of ridiculous. Like the story, like I said, it's a lot of dark humor and his family are lambasted pretty thoroughly, but so is he. He's a faintly ridiculous character. You know what I mean? He's maybe not supposed to be sympathetic protagonist, author. Maybe empathetic, but not sympathetic. You can feel bad for him and still acknowledge that he's kind of a bad dude. He's not not a not bad, just ridiculous. You know what I mean? Not very bright, maybe. Sure. Not terribly aware of his own motivations. Not particularly self-actualized as a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think someone can be a little ridiculous, a little lacking in awareness and not be bad. Mm. But then I kind of think, especially in literature, that to, to try and say a character is bad or good is pointless, broadly. Maybe. I don't know either. <laughs> Not to... I don't know a damn thing. I've never read a book in my life. I mean, it's amazing how far you've made it for being completely illiterate. I'm very proud of you. Thanks so much. So he ha- he's having these kind of hysterical thoughts about being able to lock her in his room with him. And, and I think he is kind of slipping past the point of reasonableness. And then because he has crept out of his room, one of the lodgers notices him and flips out. His parents shepherd the lodgers into his room, into mm-hmm. their rooms, mm-hmm. and then get him back into, well, they don't even get him back into his room. He's just still there in the middle of the living room. So they get the lodgers 
out of the way and the sort of final betrayal occurs, which is his sister tells his parents that they cannot go on like this any longer, that the insect is not her brother, has not been her brother. Oh. And that essentially <laughs> she says, things cannot go on like this, even if you two perhaps do not realize it. I most certainly do. I am unwilling to utter my brother's name before this creature and therefore will say only, we have to try to get rid of it. We have done everything humanly possible to care for it and show it tolerance. I don't think anyone would reproach us on this account. Good God. It's brutal. Yeah, that hurts. And weirdly enough, his father kind of does this like, are you sure he can't understand us? And it's his sister who is like, if he could understand us, he would have showed it by leaving now, by now to spare us the burden. Oof, it wasn't clear to me before. Can he speak during any of this? He cannot be understood, but he can understand everything. Sure, okay. And so his sister kind of finishes this diatribe about how he's ruined their lives. Mm -hmm. And if he cared about them, if he had ever cared about them, and if he could understand them, he would have showed it by removing himself so that they didn't have to handle it. Mm -hmm. And at this, he crawls back into his bedroom and he thought back on his family with tenderness and love. His opinion that he must by all means disappear was possibly even more emphatic than that of his sister. He remained in the state of empty, peaceful reflection until the clock tower struck the third hour of morning. He watched as everything began to lighten outside of his window. Then his head sank all the way to the floor without volition, and from his nostrils, his last breath faintly streamed. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uplifting. Very Lovely. cheerful. And that is how he dies, finally. Just gives up. Just gives up and dies. I mean, can't blame him. No. And, uh... That's pretty ruthless. Well, to compound the ruthlessness, the story keeps going for just a little bit. And in his absence, the whole family seem to find themselves greatly revived. Everything is fine. They all take the day off of work the next day. His father throws the lodgers out and, like, reclaims his, his sort of pride and the pride of the family. They, like, take a day together, take the train out, and go on, like, a picnic. And the very last thing that happens which again is so interesting to me and so complicated, is uh, they're taking the train and it says, as they were conversing, Herr and Frau Samsa were struck almost as one while observing their daughter, who was growing ever more vivacious by the thought that despite all the torments that had made her cheeks grow pale, she had recently blossomed into a beautiful, voluptuous girl. Growing quieter now and communicating with one another almost unconsciously by an exchange of glances, they thought about how it would soon be time for her to find a good husband. And when they arrived at their destination, it seemed to them almost a confirmation of their new dreams and good intentions when their daughter swiftly sprang to her feet and stretched her young body. Ew. The end. Wow. It's interesting because it seems very clear that the family is going to be fine, but also the very last thing that happens is absolute confirmation that his sister is never going to study the violin. Mm. But she's the one who delivered the kind of fatal blow to Gregor. Right. So she kind of, oh man, what a brutal message. <laughs> yeah. Just all around. And that is the story of Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Great. Yeah. I can't wait to actually dive into it. Yeah. So we're going to take a break and then we will come back to sort of hash out some of the stuff and the things. But that's that's the story beginning to end. Can't wait. Yeah. Didn't Read It was created, written, and edited by me, Grace Todd. Kaylee Hughes is our publicist and producer. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at Didn't Read It Pod, 
or reach us via email at didn'treaditpod at gmail.com. For source notes and further reading, as well as a list of all existing episodes, please visit our website at didn'treaditpod.com. We are recorded in Richmond, Virginia, with special thanks to Black Iris Social Club and Pescatrio Publishing. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please consider leaving us a review or rating on your preferred podcasting platform, or just tell a friend. If you did not enjoy today's episode, we are currently accepting applications for a full-time nemesis. Our intro music is Books, written, performed, and recorded by William Albritton. Our closing music for this episode is With Pleasure, Dance Hilarious, composed by John Philip Sousa, whose work Kafka apparently, and to me, hilariously, very much enjoyed. But even existentially despairing authors need a little boom and bounce sometimes, I suppose. Recording courtesy of MuseOpen.org.